Take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 1, a very important book in your Bible because Galatians insists that you get the basics right and that you strip away all the stuff that's confusing you and you get it down to a pure foundation and then you build on that foundation. We're on the tearing down part right now, stripping away other things that could confuse us. And this will go on for a couple of chapters and it's very important. Because anytime you state a truth, the positive statement of that truth implies certain denials. That is, it is A, it is not B. And sometimes people think that they can define something just by stating it positively, but you have to be able to state it positively and negatively. And Paul is doing that. And what we see in this broken, fallen world with our broken, fallen, limited minds is that we tend to get things confused all the time. And if someone doesn't say, it's this, it's not that, then we don't really get it. And Paul is going to do a whole bunch of that. And the purpose is to help us. Because life comes with the gospel, properly understood and properly received. Life. The whole meaning of your existence flows out of properly understanding this gospel and properly receiving it. And so every once in a while, it's very important just to get back down to your foundations, be sure they're well built. And if you've been on a shaky foundation, get it on a solid foundation so that that superstructure called your life is going to be well lived and it's going to be stable and sound and useful and productive. And that's exactly what we're, we're going to go through in Galatians. It's a very fiery letter. And it's not just because the Apostle Paul is young, which he probably is, probably around 40 or so. Uh, He's a a younger man when he writes this one compared to something like 2 Timothy or some of the later ones which tend to be a little sweeter. But it's not because of his youth that he's so fiery. It's because of the issue. Every time he writes any of his letters or anything in the Scriptures at all, They're always being written for a reason. I mean, you can even take Genesis. We studied Genesis some years ago. And you remember why Genesis was written? Moses was explaining to the Israelites who had been in slavery in a pagan country for centuries who God is. And he has to say he's not the sun, he's not the moon, he's not the reptiles. That's what the Egyptians taught you. He's the one who made those things. So even in Genesis chapter 1, the whole creation story is to say the gods of the Egyptians were creations of the one true God whom you worship. So everything in the Bible is written for an occasion. It's written because there's a problem there. We're in a fallen world and the Bible is written to address problems. And Paul has a big problem because the very core of the gospel itself is being threatened. So that's where all the fire is coming from. And honestly, to tell you the truth, sometimes I wish there was a little bit more fire in the church today. I think one reason there's not is maybe we have better manners in the 21st century. I don't know. But I imagine some of it's coming from spiritual apathy. We just don't care as much. And we don't really believe that there is as much at stake as the Apostle Paul said there was. The Apostle Paul says... Basically, what's at stake is life and death, eternal life and eternal death. That's the reason he gets exercised. It's out of love. So we're going we're gonna to look at something really fiery this morning. And let's just realize there's a reason for this. And let's be sure that we've examined our own hearts to be sure that there's a fire in there. Now, along with fire must come gracious manners. That's Christian too. But there's a time when The main point is to make the point. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing. Let's look then at Galatians chapter 1. He's already introduced himself in the what we call the salutation that we examined last week. And we saw that the standard for belief and truth in the church is the Apostle's doctrine. And Paul says, I am an Apostle sent by God. We also see how much the Lord loves us. Uh, We get grace and peace from Him. Now, let's look at this, this fiery few verses from uh, verse 6 to verse 10. Hear the word of God. I am astonished 
that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Amen. Okay, let's look at the first thing the apostle is saying in verses 6 and in the first part of 7, and that is that professing Christians will come and go. Professing Christians will come and go. We're fickle, sometimes capricious, unstable, blow like the wind. But even so, we see he says in these first words, I'm astonished. It amazes seasoned shepherds. By this time, Paul has been seasoned for over 15 years. And he is shocked by what's happening in Galatia. He preached to them the gospel of Christ and they have turned from it. He is astonished. Astonished is the same word that's used over and over again in the gospels to express the people's reaction to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ astonishes people with his miracles, and with his words. But here the Apostle Paul is astonished at the behavior of the church. He can't believe it. And I suppose, you know, in dealing with these Galatians on his first and second missionary journey, uh, he had seen the responses of the people. They looked like real, true believers who understood the gospel and rejoiced in it. And as he says in chapter 3, who's bewitched you? I mean, this is unbelievable. Some witch is coming in and taking over this church. Uh, he, couldn't, he, he couldn't believe it. He was astonished. Well, Paul, of course, later on in life, understands that we Christians, we're capable of almost anything. <laughs> we could, you know, I suppose he wouldn't say uh, toward the end of his life he's astonished anymore. He's probably, he'd probably say, I think I've seen it all in the church. And I'm just amazed what we can believe in the church and what we can do. We can do and believe just about anything. Uh, and when you've been in it for, for 30 years, you know, you say, well, I, it's hard to be astonished anymore. But honestly, sometimes I really am still astonished <laughs> at what professing Christian people do and say. So don't you be shocked. Don't let it rattle your faith. I mean, it goes way, way back. <laughs> it's endemic to this fallen world in which we live that even the church is going to have astonishing things in it. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ himself was astonished. Same word. He was, in, in Mark chapter 6, verse 6, he was astonished at their lack of faith. So we shock Jesus every once in a while. Uh, so don't let yourself be thrown too far off. The Apostle Paul uh, is truly astonished at what's happened in the church. And uh, for one thing, B, it happens so quickly. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting. Now, I've put two Old Testament references there where this is kind of an Old Testament idea that when they built the golden calf, 32, they quickly turned from the Lord. Same thing in, in Judges, they quickly turned from the Lord. So the, a point you get uh, in uh, the Old Testament is the quickness of the desertion of the people of God. So it doesn't take us a long time to come up with heresies and misbehavior. We, we come up with this. We're, we're not only astonishing, but we're fast. I mean, we, we could do all kinds of things. So maybe, and maybe you've been an astonishing person yourself. Uh, well, look, there's, there's room for repentance for every astonishing person, no matter how astonishing your bad behavior or your bad theology was. Uh, even the apostle gets shocked every once in a while, but, but he's appealing to us to come back. Uh, and you get the same thing, uh, those of you who are with us on Sunday mornings, we're, we're looking at 1 Timothy. Same thing there. Paul is writing to, the, to Timothy about the Ephesians, and Paul himself personally ministered in Ephesus for two solid years, house to house, pleading with people with tears. And ten years later, He's giving Timothy instructions about how to deal with the wild 
heresies that are taking place in Ephesus. It's just amazing. Just one decade later, they're, they're, they're threatening to become a heretical church. So professing Christians will definitely come and go. Now, notice that, that when we turn our backs on, on the gospel, on the pure gospel, that it is personal. Paul says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting. He doesn't say deserting the gospel. He says deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ. This is a per- when, when you when you uh, tamper with the gospel and you believe in something other than what God has revealed in the gospel, it's a personal desertion. It's like personal becoming a personal traitor to the commanding officer. That, that's what it is. Uh, that's the way Paul describes it. And we're going to ask ourselves here uh, at this word deserting. What does that mean? It's well, it's transferring allegiance. It's being a traitor or a turncoat. That's what that word desertion means. In this text. Now, some will say, I'm a little confused, Pastor, because I thought, at least my preacher told me, that once you're saved, you're always saved. How can you receive the gospel of grace and then turn your back on the gospel and desert God who called you? I thought, if you're called, you're in. Effectual calling. It's, a, it's effective, it never fails. Well, uh, leave your, body, your finger in, first, in Galatians 1, but turn toward the back of your Bible. And if you've got the Spirit of the Reformation Study Bible, we're on page 2036. This is 1 John 2. And look what Paul says about the Antichrists. There are several Antichrists. And he says in verse 18, Dear children, this is 1 John 2, 18, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. Now look at verse 19. They went out from us. These Antichrists didn't come from the school of philosophy. They came from the church. All right? So they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Okay. John is saying, rest at ease. Just because someone comes into the physical presence of the church, just because someone professes their faith and is baptized, just because someone puts their name on the roll and is received as a Christian by the elders doesn't mean that you know what they really are. Only God knows. You do the best you can. You ask them for a profession of faith to join your church. And you assume that they're giving you an honest profession. You have no reason to question them. But then when they abandon the gospel, then you realize, you know what? They really either weren't converted or in their, they're in a period of backsliding, as the Methodists would call it. And that's a legitimate thing. People do backslide. They go into things, they start believing things that are not biblical. And then later they repent and come back. So they can have periods of weakness, uh, moral weakness, theological weakness, spiritual weakness, and then they come back. Or maybe they were never converted in the first place. And now they're just showing their true colors. So it's true, once saved, always saved, but once saved, always saved. And you don't know for sure that they're saved. Now, what the Bible doesn't teach is once professing your faith, always saved. Because the devil can profess his faith. He can lie. And I lied and I didn't even know it. I thought I was a Christian before I was a Christian. If you'd asked me if I was a Christian, I said, hell yes. <laughs> and I didn't know I was lying. I thought that's what a Christian was, just a guy who kind of generally identifies himself with you know, the Christian movement and so on. I didn't know any better. And so, you know, eventually I prove that I'm not one of you when I walked out for about a decade. And then when I come back, I come back by profession of faith. And this time, well, no, actually, the next time wasn't honest either. But I found out after I joined the church by a profession of faith that wasn't sincere, I got converted later in the church. So I did it twice. I lied twice. And the first time I went out... And so you knew my nature. Second time I lied and stayed and eventually got converted. So you don't know. You're just taking me and my word. But inside something either happens or it doesn't happen. Now, once I got 
saved. I mean, really regenerated, born again by the Holy Spirit. And my nature now is beginning to change, believe it or not. Uh, then yeah, I'm, I'm as good as gold. There's nothing that can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the reason that we studied, you know, when we were in Second Peter, make your calling and, a, and election sure. That is, you do a better job than I did. Examine yourself and be sure that your profession is genuine. And you are to search out your own heart to be sure that your calling and election is sure because you're, you're trusting Christ is genuine. So what was happening here, you had plenty of people who were making professions of faith. But then they were turning on the gospel. And we'll, we'll speculate as to why. We won't even have to speculate uh, for some of the reasons. But we'll see why in just a moment. So there's what you have to realize in your church, I don't care how hard you try on the front end to be sure that only honest-to-goodness Christians get in your church. What you'll get, the harder you try sometimes, what you'll be sure to get are the most hypocritical, hard-headed uh, moralists in town who are sure to be in your sure-fired, spiritually mature, clean, perfect church. You'll get everyone who thinks they're spiritually on fire, clean, and I'm, I want you to know I want them to go to your church, not mine. <laughs> so we have to make the message clear, but, the, but if you press it beyond making your message clear, all you're going to ensure yourself of is getting all the self-righteous moralists in your church. So let's just face it. If we're gospel-centered in our life, in our churches, we're going to be receiving some people who give us a profession of faith and who are not genuinely converted. That's another reason why the gospel needs to be studied regularly everywhere because those who know Christ need to be bolstered in gospel life and those who belong to the church need to keep hearing it like I need to keep hearing it and eventually it breaks through, you know, we get converted. So we're seeing that it's a personal desertion and uh, that's because people are not always genuinely converted when they join the church. Now, notice fourthly with professing Christians this desertion is heretical. Now, heresy, the word heresy, comes from a Greek word, heresis, which means to choose or it can even mean a sect. In other words, you, you remember that Paul was, uh, says he was from the sect of the Pharisees. That's the word heresy. So initially it was not a bad word. Heresy was not. It just meant you're, you're of a party or a sect, a group. In fact, the Christians we're called a high racist, a sect, weren't we? And then we started calling ourselves the way. But originally we were called a sect. And, it, it, you know, so the word heresy is not bad until later. And then the sects that were called heresy were those sects, that's S-E-C-T-S, which were, they were uh, uh, affiliating themselves with doctrines which were peculiar and contrary to the gospel. So now... The de definition of a heresy goes like this. Someone who denies a cardinal truth of the Scriptures and embraces error. That's what a heresy is. And that's what's happening in Galatia. They are denying a cardinal truth of the gospel and they are accepting error. They're denying a revealed truth and accepting error. Now, we know what this error is because Paul talks about it in pretty good detail in uh, Galatians chapter 2, but you even see it clearly in Acts. Leave your finger in Galatians 1. Go back to Acts, uh, three or four books there in your Bible, chapter 15, and look at verse 1. The first council of the church was the council of Jerusalem, and it was convened for this purpose. Luke says, Acts 15, 1, some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So there's the heresy that, oh, yes, you have to have Jesus. You can't be saved without Jesus. But in addition to that, you have to be baptized, whoops, uh, circumcised. So, well, in addition to that, you've got to stop drinking completely. Oh, no, no, you've got to be circumcised. I mean, you can, you can add all kinds of things to that. In order to join our church, you have to do this and this. Now, you've got to receive Jesus, but you've got to do this. You've got to have our particular baptism. You've got to do it our way. And you have to add this and that, and you've got to agree to this and that. You're adding to what it means to be saved. 
So that was the problem in Jerusalem. It was probably coming out of Galatia. That's probably where a lot of the problem was coming from. And Paul certainly faced it there. And that was the uh, confusion that he was facing in the church. And we'll see it later in chapter 2. Folks were saying, you've got to receive Jesus Christ and you have to have this ritual mark. You have to be circumcised. The Old Testament says so. They had all the theological case for it. And, this, and we should not be breaking the traditions of Moses. That's what Paul was facing. And this was no small matter. Gentlemen, this was not some little denominational squabble on a minor doctrine. This was the core of the gospel. And that's the reason you get all the heat that comes with it. Now, let me say that uh, it's, for those of you who have studied Galatians before or you're a little bit aware of church history, you know that Galatians was, uh, as I mentioned to you last time, Martin Luther uh, said that uh, Galatians was, he was wedded to Galatians. Galatians was his Catherine. And if you know anything about the history of the Protestant Reformation and the major rupture that took place in the Western church at that time, you know that the issues coming out of Galatians were the primary formal issues that were being addressed uh, between what became later the Protestants and the Catholics. And you probably know that the Protestant Reformation in a lot of ways was fueled by Luther's commentary on Galatians. And you probably know that the Roman Catholics, after the Protestant Reformation, anathematized the Protestant doctrines. And you probably know that ever since then, there's been a major rift. And you probably know I'm a Protestant, and this is going to come up somewhere. Well, let me say this about it. There's no doubt that there is an issue that needs to continue to be discussed among people like ourselves and needs to be discussed in love that exists between Catholics and Protestants. And frankly, I think most Catholics and Protestants don't really know what the heart of the disagreement is all about. All we know as Catholics is you've got to watch out for those Protestants. And all we know as Protestants, you've got to watch out for those Catholics because my mama told me so. And that's the way we treat each other. And I want to say that's a travesty of love. Uh, it's a travesty of intelligent discourse. Uh, let me say my observation of it is that there are problems all around with all groups. And my favorite people to pick on are the Presbyterians. So let me start with you. Uh, you know, you root your theological history back to the Protestant Reformation in large part. Forgetting, of course, that Calvin quoted Augustine more than anybody else. Calvin saw himself as devoted to the Catholic Church. Not the Roman Catholic Church necessarily, but the Catholic Church. Uh, Calvin said he would cross seven seas to unite the church. He would go anywhere to build unity. Soon after the break, the theological break began to happen, there was a meeting in a town called Marburg between Luther between two groups of Protestants, Luther and Melanchthon on the one hand, and then the Swiss uh, Zwingli and Echolampadius on the other to try to get together to build unity. They talked for days and couldn't agree, and their disagreement was on the sacrament. Finally, at the end of the discussion, I believe it was Zwingli who said to Luther, well, it's too bad that we couldn't agree, but let us grant that we're brothers and at, at which point Luther said, obviously you don't take theology very seriously. <laughs> and so we had then the Swiss Reformed and the German Reformed. And I want to suggest that was be the beginning of heresy among the Protestants. Rampant heresy that needs to be repented of. We have something like 20,000 denominations in the United States. And in one sense, it makes life a little easier because if, like, if you don't like the Methodists, you can go over to the Baptists. If you don't like the Baptists, you can go over to the Episcopalians and so on. You can just shop around, find the church that just fits you. Uh, <laughs> so if you look at it from a marketing perspective, I suppose you could make a case for it. But when you look at the Bible, I don't think you can make a case for it. And it seems to me that when we look at the Protestant Reformation, I speak to fellow Protestants and Presbyterians in particular, that yes, you can say, okay, there's a real formal idea there that we need to discuss that's very, very important, 
and we need to be willing to stake our lives on it. But you also have to realize that undoubtedly, unquestionably, when you look at the historical events that occurred afterwards, there was a lot of sin on the Protestants' part that was mixed in there. And, and we only see the one doctrine that we were concerned about. We forget the doctrine of the church. And we have mauled the doctrine of the church. The church was not meant to be splintered. And we'll split over anything. And Presbyterians, you act like the church is a theological academy. And when people don't agree with every doctrine of your academy, then you just go to and make another church. What are you thinking? Is our life basically an agreement on doctrines? Or is there something substantial to our one nature in Christ that binds our hearts together? Are we trying anywhere nearly hard enough to create unity in the church? We've, when we left our Catholic brothers and sisters, we left the doctrine of the church behind us in a lot of ways. I don't agree with everything the Roman Catholics say about the doctrine of the church. You know that. I'm a Presbyterian. But we left a lot of what we need to know about the church behind. So I would say there's, there's heresy everywhere. And it's so much, so much easier to, for a Catholic to look at the, the, what we call the split peas, the little Presbyterian denominations all over the place, and say, they obviously don't know anything about the church. And it's easy for the Presbyterians to look over the Catholics and say, well, y'all don't know anything about justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And both need to listen very carefully. Now, let's see. Let's pick on somebody else. You Methodists and Baptists. Let me get you for just a minute. <laughs> you really don't want anything added to the gospel. And then you can walk around some of these old Baptist churches and find the covenant for membership includes no, no dealing with alcoholic beverages. Where in the world did you get that? Now, look, I speak as the one who's almost a teetotaler. <laughs> I mean, I, I really just, I basically don't drink unless I'm in Europe. <laughs> and then... <laughs> And then it's a matter of fellowship with the Christians. Uh, so I'm not arguing for alcohol use. I'm arguing for the gospel. Where did you get the idea that the gospel includes excluding people from your membership who sell alcoholic beverages or drink alcoholic beverages? That's heresy, pure and simple. So, I mean, and shall I go on? Uh, <laughs> Let's talk about the Christian church. I mean, really, you've added so many things to the gospel. You've obscured it as a denomination. So, gentlemen, whether it's popes and councils or denominational presbyteries or assemblies, you know what? You have to tell them all where to get off. And I don't say that lightly. I, I, I include myself. Tell Sandy Wilson where to get off. You've got the Bible in front of you. And that's what Paul means when he says, I was commissioned by Christ himself. And that cuts through everything in history. Look, I'm one who believes in looking at your, your traditions, your denominational assemblies, listening carefully to what collected groups of Christians are saying. They normally have a whole lot more wisdom than you do and I do or any of them do as individuals. There's wisdom with collection of brothers and sisters getting together. I'm all for that. But there is a resounding authority that echoes through the centuries, and you've got to keep listening. Our standard is not the Westminster Confession of Faith. I love the Westminster Confession of Faith, but I am free in my conscience to disagree with it. And I do in certain places. My conscience is not free to disagree with the Bible. And so I'd say to you Roman Catholic brothers uh, here, you've got to be free to disagree with the popes and councils. You've got to agree to the Bible alone. And when we stick with the Bible alone, properly interpreted, we're going to find that every man is wrong from time to time. And we're all learning and growing. But be very careful that your first critique is toward your own group. You know them better than any other group. So rather than being defensive, let's be gracious and realize that within our own group, we have plenty of reasons to be concerned. And honestly, honestly, when I look at the doctrine that we're going to get into in chapter 2, which is at the core of this, that's being threatened by the Galatians, the doctrine of justification, how we're found acceptable before God with Christ alone, I find just as many problems, in fact, because I'm a Presbyterian minister, I find more problems in the Presbyterian church than I do in the Roman Catholic church. 
I really do. I find more people in the evangelical churches stumbling over their justification. They don't understand justification by faith alone and Christ alone. They've added all kinds of things to it. The heresy is not one that happened 500 years ago and we settle it. Catholics and Protestants all have to deal with this regularly, vigorously, beginning with your own heart to be sure that you're putting your trust in Christ alone and nothing else. So the heresy's everywhere, boys. Uh, dive in. Fifthly, it's tragic. Paul says, look, you're calling this a different gospel or you've gone to a different gospel. But then he says, look, this different gospel really isn't a gospel at all. It's, you're calling it the gospel. You think you can have a different gospel than I do, but he says, when you leave the gospel that I preached and that you accepted, you have no more good news. Your message is not good news. And when you obscure your way of being accepted by God, when you obscure that message, and we'll see how that happens in the next chapter, you have another gospel altogether. Peter says there's only one gospel. Jesus said there's only one way. It's through him. So this is the tragedy of it all, is that their idea is an idea that abandons the gospel altogether. They've tinkered with it, and they ended up destroying it, as we'll see. Uh, now, we have to ask ourselves before we go to this next, these next verses, why do people do this? Well, we're going to see in chapter 6 of Galatians that some of it is just simply pride. People want to boast about their flesh. Now, in this case with circumcision, they wanted to boast about their circumcision. Say, see, I belong. And that's my mark, my badge. And so now they have something to boast about. Or see, my life's cleaned up. I belong. I'm no longer, I'm no longer uh, addicted to alcohol. Or I don't, you know, I don't do this or I don't do that. I don't cheat anymore. I don't lie anymore. Why? My marriage now is solid. Look at me. I'm a Christian. People want to boast in something in themselves. It's not our fallen nature to be bragging about somebody else, to brag about how we got rescued from drowning. That's not in our nature to do that. We brag about how we rescued somebody, but we don't brag about how people rescued us. So the, the fundamental problem, the reason that your understanding and my understanding of the gospel, of how we are justified before God gets obscured, is because we want to obscure it. We want there to be some reason within us that God chose us. We want there to be something in us to which we can ascribe credit or merit, to use the, the, the Roman Catholic terminology. We want some merit somewhere. And that's the reason that Presbyterians and Baptists and Methodists and Episcopalians obscure it. Because we want to have something else in there. Well, I don't, you know, I belong to the no drinking club. You know, I, there's something in me that makes me a worthy member. That's where it's coming from. And it also comes, as we'll see in Galatians 6, from fear. We don't want people who think the gospel is ridiculous to think we're stupid. So we build a religious system that respectable, intelligent people will think is credible. And that's not the gospel-based message. So we'll abandon the gospel-based message because it sounds like something in... In cartoons, you know, how can this be that God himself takes on human flesh and dies on a wooden tree under the Roman authority and that somehow pays for my sins? It sounds like a fantasy. So we'll pick something else that people don't think is so ridiculous. Well, you know, if you strive hard enough and you're seeking after God and, you know, you get religiously involved and you get kind of in this other realm and have a religious experience, you know, and if you live the right kind of life, you know, the, the big man upstairs, he'll, he'll eventually bring you up there with him, you know. Well, that makes some sense. Yeah, buddy, pal, you know, good old boy. It makes more sense to people. So it's out of pride and out of fear and then, of course, out of just simple unbelief. We just, we ourselves don't believe this fantastic gospel. It's just too outrageous. There's got to be something else. You know, it's like, like the, the youth group up in St. Louis that was doing a car, free car wash for the neighborhood. They weren't raising money for missions. They were just doing a free car wash. It's called Grace. And they had people come in there. It was in a, you know, an upscale neighborhood in St. Louis because it was Presbyterians after all. And, <laughs> and people would come in for the car wash and they'd say, oh, good, yeah, wash my car, thank you. And then they'd want to give them $5. No, sir, you can't give us the money. And they would, people would get angry. And then they would, they would just throw the money out in the street and drive off. 
they weren't going to have some kids give them something free. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be indebted to any man. Nobody's going to give me anything free. That's, that's the mentality. And if that's your mentality, you're going to be adding to the gospel. Because you, you just don't believe it. And you don't, you don't want to be indebted. You don't want it to be completely free. You want something, some way that you sacrificed or paid for this. It's, it's a deal, you know, and, and it's a fair deal. You, you've done your part. Forget it. You're going to obscure the gospel. Now let's go to the next verses where he says in verse 7b, evidently some people are throwing you into confusion. The church is thrown into confusion. The word here, thrown into confusion, is the, the church is troubled. It's agitated. It's like it's in a washing machine. The agitator is shaking up the church. Is being deeply shaken. So heresy always throws the church into confusion. It divides the church. It gets the church at odds with itself. Secondly, the gospel is perverted. He says, evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. So... What they're doing with their heresies is perverting the core of Christian doctrine. Now, the word perverted basically means to reverse something. So they're, they're not enhancing the gospel for sure. They're not even kind of weighing it down and making it burdensome. They're turning it on its head. They're making something that was beautiful the opposite of beautiful. They're reversing it, turning it around, turning it upside down. You cannot add to Christ's work and still have the gospel. Christ's work for your justification. Now, you work, and we're going to get to that. That's called sanctification. We're going to talk about your work. But you do not add to what Christ has performed on your behalf for your justification. That's Paul's point. And when you try, you're going to mess it up. You're going to reverse the gospel. And why do people do this? It says He says they want to pervert the gospel. Why do they want to pervert it? Galatians 6 will tell you, verses 12 through 14 or something right in there you can look, because people want to avoid persecution. They don't want people saying they're stupid. In this case, the Judaizers didn't want fellow Judaizers to persecute them for abandoning Jewish traditions. So they were going to say, you've got to embrace the core of the Jewish traditions as well as Jesus Christ, and this will keep these people over here happy. So they were compromising the core message of the gospel to keep some people happy. It was just fear of man as well as pride, he says in Galatians 6, they wanted to boast about your flesh. Paul goes on to say, may I never boast. And that's where that hymn comes from, when I survey the wondrous cross. May I never boast about anything except the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. There you have it. It was on the cross that I'm justified. That is my boast. And may I never be tempted to boast about something in my flesh or your flesh. But he says that's what these people want to do. They want to boast to their Jewish friends. Hey, you see all these Gentiles? They all got circumcised. And I'm bragging about them. See what they've done? And he said they just want to boast about something you've done and they've done. And that's where all of the additions to the gospel come from, human Pride. Now, before we leave that, let's admit this, that in God's sweet providence, the orthodox doctrine of the church, as we have it in human language, not inspired, but very helpful, has come from those moments in history when the church has addressed heresy. I'm so grateful that we have the book of Galatians. Because I get confused too about justification. I too want to add things that I think I've done that'll get God's attention. I too want credit for going to heaven. I too am proud and I too am afraid of men. And I need this strong message. And I wouldn't have it if heresy hadn't taken place in southern Galatia in the first century and Paul hadn't had to address it. Now this is biblical truth. But you take the seven great ecumenical councils that Protestants and Catholics all agree about that have to do with huge controversies about the nature of Jesus Christ, huge controversies about the nature of the Trinity, huge controversies about, about what belongs in the canon and what doesn't belong in the canon. All these things, they all came as a result of heresies. All these councils were addressing problems in the church. So in God's sweet providence, he has taken something that's fairly ugly and he has made it extraordinarily useful. And you can take any great 
doctrine or set of doctrines that have been established by the church in the history of the church. And you'll see they're all responses to current day heresies. So all of our great documents that help instruct us, uh, all under the authority of the scriptures, of course, but all of them that help instruct us have come from moments of controversy. So God gets the, the final hurrah in the end. But notice what happens. Uh, not only do these heretics ticks rise and oppose the church and the gospel, but then they are cursed. They will fall. This is very, very strong language. I don't think you'll find anything stronger in all the apostles' writings. And this is, he doesn't delay this message with, as we saw last time, with some condom, commendation, which he usually gives the church. Oh, I've been thanking God for you all the time in my prayers, or how I rejoice that you're, you know, all the progress you're making, da, da, da. He doesn't give them any of that stuff. He just goes right to this, this anathema, this curse. And he says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be anathematized, is literally what it says. Let him be cursed. Let him, and the NIV translates it, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Now let's notice first of all, this is no matter who it is. They are cursed no matter who it is. Even himself. He says, if I get proud and start preaching some other kind of a addition to your, the basis of your justification. He doesn't say, my, may my message be anathematized. He says, may I be condemned, eternally cursed. He says, let me press it one step further. If some glorious being comes to you from heaven and speaks to you in an audible voice and gives you a gospel other than the one this apostle gave you and you received a few years ago, tell that angel to go to hell. May he be eternally condemned. I mean, this is the kind of language he's using. So he says, that's what I think. You say, strong memo to follow. <laughs> I mean, you know, what do you really think, uh, Paul, about this? Uh, he's very clear about it. This is a matter of life and death, and a curse rests upon the heretic. This is very serious business. It doesn't matter who it is. If I'm 6'1", and someone who is a professor of physics comes up here and tells you all the reasons why I'm 6'5". And he explains how we really don't have the proper measurements or everything's relative and gives you all these arguments. Just say, hey, just bring up the ruler. Measure him up, 6'1". If Billy Graham comes in here and tries to explain to you why he thinks I'm 6'5", and he puts all of his all of his evangelistic authority of five decades of preaching the gospel around the world with millions coming to him, and he tells you, with all the authority I've got, he's 6'5". Just say, get the ruler. Just get the ruler. That's what the apostle is saying. Just get the ruler. And what is the standard? The standard is the apostle's doctrine. It's the gospel we preach to you and that you received. Get the ruler out. You can get people with all kinds of academic degrees, or with funny-looking hats, or with lots of years of experience as clergy, you can put them all in a room, put smells and bells in there, and make it, you know, with beautiful orchestras before they make their pronouncements. Get the ruler out. Pull it out. That's your standard. It's the apostle's doctrine. The apostle is saying, look, who's bewitched you? Somebody who's really smooth, someone who's really impressive, somebody whose credentials you believed, and they bewitched you. Pull the ruler out. What is the gospel I gave you and that you received? And I gave it to you with all of Christ's authority. That's the standard. Thirdly, the judgment is severe. And we see this in, in Mark 9.42 from the lips of Jesus Christ when he's talking about what happens to those who lead people astray. He says, and if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. Be very careful. Be very careful. So the Apostle Paul is saying, professing Christians will come and go, heretics will rise and fall. Thirdly, 
He's saying that faithful Christian men must stand up and be counted. Now, what's really interesting, if you go back to uh, Roman numeral 2A2, where I say the gospel is perverted, I, I say there, compare this with Philippians 1, 15 through 18. Let me, let me make that point before we go further because I want to speak to Philippians here again. In Philippians 1, Paul is in prison. And it seems that he is in prison because fellow Christians turn him in. And it seems that the reason that fellow Christians did him in was because they were jealous of his authority and of his ministry. And if you look carefully at Philippians 1, verses 15 through 18, it looks as though Paul is saying they, they are preaching Christ out of envy. They're preaching Christ hoping that I'll get in more trouble for it. Can you imagine this? You've given your life for 30 years to take the gospel all over Europe and Asia. You're now in, under house arrest in Rome. And you, what do the brothers do for you? They want you to stay there because they're jealous of you. I can't feature that. I mean, I think I'd have a few things to say in my little letter to the Philippians about those people. Here's what Paul says. But it doesn't matter. As long as Christ is preached, whether with good motives or bad. That's what Paul says. He dismisses it as something that's adiaphora. It doesn't matter. Now, of course, we want to preach with good motives. But he says, as long as Christ is being preached, if they're preaching Christ to keep me in prison, keep preaching Christ. So he announces no anathema, no curse, on those idiotic Christians who are preaching to keep the apostle in prison. But when you tamper with the message that alone saves people, you bring out the wrath of God out of the apostle Paul. And I have to ask you, what do you really care about? What gets your juices flowing? Is it your own reputation, your own comfort, your own convenience, the benefits the gospel brings you that no brother should obscure? Or rather, is it this is the gospel that exalts the glorious grace of Jesus Christ? And I'm in life for one thing, to represent him and his gospel. That's the way the apostle Paul is communicating. Now, he says in Philippians chapter 1, therefore... Uh, that we must contend as one man for the gospel. The Philippians, unlike the Galatians, were a lovely church, very supportive church, but they were a little timid. And Paul is saying, you've got to stand up. All you wonderful, timid, sweet brothers have to come together as one man and contend for the gospel. The gospel always has to be contended for. It has to be proclaimed and defended. So, you must stand up for it. But we see, first of all, you're rarely going to win popularity contests when you proclaim and defend the gospel. And that's where our pride and our fear comes in. This is the price to be paid for the gospel. And Jesus says in John chapters 5 and 12 that how can you receive the praise of God when you're seeking the praise of men? And secondly, we do this because we're serving Christ. He says, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now, the reason Paul addresses this is that he was obviously being accused by the Galatians for preaching his message of grace because he just wanted to please people. Oh, you're just, you've got a sloppy agape message. You've got a message that people don't matter where they're adulterers or murderers or drunkards or homosexuals. You're just telling them all come in and Jesus will forgive all of their sins. They don't have to do anything. Yeah, we know why you're doing that because you're just a man pleaser. You just want to give a cheap gospel that justification is by the work of Jesus Christ alone and you can't add anything to it. You're doing that because you're just, you're just trying to win favor with people. So the Apostle Paul is here saying, he's saying, okay, let me show you how I win friends. Go to hell. How's that for winning friends and influencing people? Do you think now that I'm saying let those heretics be accursed that I'm now trying to win the favor of men? He says, no, I'm a servant of Christ. So Paul says, look, this gracious kind, free gospel 
involves men who will stand up and proclaim and explain and defend it with courage for one reason. Choose this day whom you will serve. And you must choose to serve Christ. And therefore, let every man be a liar. God is truth. I will serve him. And that's that commitment. It's not just a doctrine that comes through the ages. It's a commitment to Christ that cuts through the ages with all the church councils and everything that's being said around you. It's you and Christ with the Bible. The church advises you. The church helps you. The church sometimes disciplines you. The church teaches you. The church holds you accountable in community. We have to have the church, Presbyterians. But as a church, we must devote ourselves to be servants of this gospel. That's what the apostle is saying. This, I didn't give you this way of being saved because I wanted it to be popular with you. I gave it to you for this reason. Because this way of being saved is the only way, number one. And number two, it is the way that exalts God. It glorifies God when people are freely forgiven, freely justified, freely included. God gets all the glory. And if Paul was anything, he was a man who sought the glory of God. That's the message for us today. That's the men we're supposed to be. And when we are, we'll see professing Christians come and go. We'll see heretics rise and fall. And we'll see ourselves standing up and being counted. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for this precious gospel and pray that we may understand it. Help us, whether we're Presbyterians or Methodists or Baptists or Episcopalians or Christian Church or Catholics or Orthodox, whatever we are, Help us to understand the gospel and to apply it in our lives. And then, Lord, as we understand it and continue to listen and learn from each other, help us to be courageous so that we are the men who communicate the gospel, who believe it, who put it into practice, and when necessary, defend it, all for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. God bless you all real good.